All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, disciples live for the life to come, and let's just start in verse 12 of that chapter. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is without foundation, and so is your faith. In addition, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Or as one of the older translations puts it, we are of all people most miserable. Let's just dive right in. That Christ died and rose from the dead is both the central teaching of the Christian faith and the major fact in defending it. You know what I'm talking about? For example, all defense of the Christian faith starts with the resurrection. How do you know that Jesus is God in the flesh? Well, he died on a cross. That's wonderful, but it doesn't prove... Lots of men have died on crosses, even just this past week. Someone was killed in Saudi Arabia and nailed to a cross or fastened to a cross in some fashion. People can die on crosses, but can they rise from the dead? Jesus is proven to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. So the proof that Jesus is the Son of God is that he rose from the dead. How do we know that we can trust the Bible? Because the man who rose from the dead says that the Bible, starting with Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and going all the way through the end of the New Testament, he says that the Bible is the Word of God. So we can trust it because the man who rose from the dead said we could trust it. And on and on it goes. Whatever you want to defend about the Christian faith, it all starts with the resurrection. It's the central teaching of the Christian faith, and it is the major fact when we want to defend uh, the unique nature of our faith, when we want to defend the exclusive nature of our faith. Whatever it is that we want to do, we always depend upon the resurrection. Now, that, of course, is behind Paul's quandary. He's, he's like, he's shocked. He can't imagine. How can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? That's right there in verse 12. How can you do that? Now, it seems to me that all of us, you and me, all of us in this room, ought to be surprised that any Christian would say that there is no resurrection since so much depends upon it. Now, I'm not even going to get into liberalism today. I'm not going to get into that whole concept of uh, some people who would say, well, it was a spiritual resurrection And somehow the disciples came to the realization that Christ was risen in their hearts and they were filled with his love and filled with his power. No, no, it was a physical resurrection. We're going to just defend that all day and stand upon that. I won't spend any more time. Uh, That other position is so ridiculous. Let's just leave it alone. But it seems to me then that we ought to be surprised that anyone, that any Christian would say, or any person calling themselves a Christian would say there's no resurrection. And certainly Paul seems shocked at this denial He's he's just reminded the Corinthian Christians that the resurrection was an essential part of the gospel. 
The very gospel. Remember last week, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. According to the scriptures, he was seen by a number of people, including at 1.500 people all at once. And so the very gospel that he preached when he planted the church was the gospel of the resurrection. But it turns out, and I want you to hear this with your heart, because if you miss this, you're going to miss the point of the message this morning. It turns out that denying the resurrection may be a greater temptation than you might think. I'm serious about that. I hope to explain it in a moment. We'll get there. But first, I want us just to look directly at Paul's reaction to this denial of the resurrection. We're going to look at his argument in these verses that we've just read. I'll refer to the verse numbers. I'm not going to reread the passage. So if you have your Bible open in whatever fashion you read the Bible these days, Check the verses to make sure that what I tell you is true. So the first thing is, Paul says, how can you say there's no resurrection since Christ is proclaimed everywhere and by all as being raised from the dead? That's verse 12. Now, one of the reasons the the resurrection story is impossible to deny is that it began to be proclaimed within weeks of the very event. Remember when Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preached the resurrection of Christ He did so less than two months after that resurrection had taken place in the very city where that resurrection took place. And he was daring the authorities around him to deny that the tomb was empty and that the man Christ Jesus had risen from the dead. But this is where it really gets interesting. Researchers have concluded that when Paul says back in verse 3 of this same chapter, when he says back in verse 3, I passed on to you that which I also, or that, that uh, as most important, what I also received. I started to try to quote it in King James, that which I also received as of first importance. But either way, I passed on to you as most important what I also received. He's talking about a received truth concerning the resurrection that came to him within three to eight years of the actual event. So, in other words, his conversion and his meeting with the apostles and so forth, and their communicating to him their central message, all this happened within probably no more than three years of the actual event of the resurrection and certainly no more than eight years at the most. So the resurrection then is not a myth that was added to the gospel centuries later. That sometimes is the accusation. Well, the church just jammed in the story of the resurrection 400 years later just to you know, give them something to preach or something. But no, it wasn't. It was the core of gospel preaching from the very beginning. It is the truth upon which the Christian faith is founded. So that's the first point in his argument. Number two, Paul says in verse 13, if there is no resurrection, then certainly Christ was never raised. And then in verse 14, he says, that means the entire Christian faith is built on a falsehood. And if there's no resurrection, there's no point in preaching because there's no real gospel to preach. I mean, there's no good news, particularly. Every now and then I'll look in the paper and they'll have some new discipline that we can follow, whether it's yoga or whether it's a diet or whatever it may be. There Every, every week there are new disciplines for us to follow if we want, but there's no good news in that because it always means working hard to achieve very little. And so there's no point in preaching because there's no real gospel to preach. Number four, it also means, and this is verse 15, that Christians are liars, perhaps guilty of overselling God. Have you ever noticed that when you're being sold something, uh, the salesperson will often make promises that the product itself cannot keep. It'll never wear out. (laughs) And then you discover within weeks that it, sure, it can wear out rather quickly, in fact. 
Or it not only washes your dishes, it puts the cat out at night and it walks the dog, you know, and, and, uh, or whatever it may be. But no, it doesn't do any of those things. And so Christians, if there's no resurrection, are guilty of overselling God. And then verse 16, which interestingly enough is a, a direct repeat of verse 13, for if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. I think Paul is trying to get this basic idea through their thick heads that there is a resurrection because Christ is raised. There's no resurrection if Christ has not been raised. And how dare we preach the gospel without including the resurrection of Christ? And that brings us to verse 17. Without the resurrection, faith is worthless. Why is faith worthless without the resurrection? Because without the resurrection, we are still in our sins. And the whole point of the resurrection is that God has forgiven us in Christ and has promised to bring to himself all who die believing in his Son. It was sin that killed the human race in the first place. Never forget that. It was sin that brought death upon the human race to begin with. And if Christ has conquered sin for us, then he cannot stay dead. If he has conquered sin, he cannot stay dead. He must live, and through faith in him, we live in him. And finally, verse 18, without the resurrection, there is no hope of ever again seeing our departed loved ones. They are gone forever. Actually, if you want a verse that teaches uh, that one of the great joys of of, um, celebrating the passing of someone who has died full of faith in the Lord, one of the great joys is that we will get to see them again someday. And if you want a verse that teaches us that, it is verse 18. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. But of course, that's not what Paul is trying to argue. He is arguing for the resurrection, which means those who've fallen asleep in Christ live. They live. And we can expect to see them again. So there's Paul's basic argument. If it's convoluted, if it seems repetitive, it's because he's trying to drive a point home and get it through the thick skulls of those Corinthian Christians. It's almost like making an announcement over and over again for weeks at a time and then having people say, I don't even know, I never heard what you were talking about. It's almost the same thing. Without the work of Christ on the cross, then, the Christian message would be reduced to mere philosophy. We might as well be Buddhists or Stoics or anything else you like. The resurrection is the cornerstone of Christian exclusivity. That is, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And why is that? Because no one else ever rose from the dead. And of course, the resurrection proves what Jesus did. He died for our sins. No one else ever died for the sins of the world. So let me say it again. Without the resurrection, Jesus' death is meaningless and our faith is meaningless. And that's why Paul finishes today's text by saying that without the resurrection, we should be pitied more than anyone. I'm going to say more about that in a minute, but let's change, let's shift gears for just a moment. Have you ever heard of something called Bennett buggies? A few of you may be old enough to remember them, maybe actually saw some. Back in the time of the Great Depression, we're talking about the 1930s, a lot of Canadians could no longer afford fuel for their automobiles. So they would cut the front off their car and tie on a couple of horses and off they'd go. And they called them Bennett buggies because they were named after the prime minister of the time, R.B. Bennett. He was held responsible for the Depression 
that afflicted essentially the whole Western world. The United States was in depression at the same time. Europe was in depression at the same time. The Western world was in depression, but R.B. Bennett got the blame in Canada, and so these were called Bennett buggies. And uh, there's another one. Let's look at that second picture, if you will. Another picture of a Bennett buggy. Yeah, there's it. There you go. Just cut off the front and hitch a couple of horses up, and, and you've got something that you can ride in anyway. Um, now, suppose there was a depression in the future. This would be what a Bennett buggy of the future would look like. Let's go to the next slide. There you go, right there. (laughs) All right. All that, all that to say this. Without the resurrection, Christianity is like a car with no engine. You may be able to pull it down the road somehow. But it will never be the same. The power of our faith, that is its hope, its joy, the, 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 the faith that enables us to face whatever this life brings, we face it with equanimity. We face it with, without losing our hope. We face it without falling into depression. Why? Because of the resurrection. We know that Christ rose. We know that in him we too will rise again because he lives, we live in him. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, his death paid for our sins. But his resurrection proved our sins were paid for and it demonstrated that we can be set right with God, that is, justified. Remember, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He made himself responsible for paying the sin debt of everyone who would ever believe in him. And if he failed to pay for a single one of the sins that were laid on him, he would never have been raised from the dead. But as we get to next week, the text that follows says, but now is Christ risen from the dead? And so we know that in the resurrection, we have the promise of forgiveness. We have the promise of justification. We have the promise of the hope of eternal life. Now, I want to talk to you for a few moments about why Paul reinforced the resurrection. First, to counteract the pagan worldview, that is the universal worldview that prevailed outside of Judeo-Christianity of that time, to counteract the pagan worldview that was universally opposed to the idea of resurrection. That is, it made, resurrection made no sense to the pagans. They knew what happened to dead bodies. Dead bodies decayed. They disappeared. They went back into the ground from whence they came. And, and, and according to paganism, if the spirit or the soul of a man somehow lived on, this remaining spirit or soul was a poor, pitiful thing, a, a shade, a, a ghost, only half alive in some dark, gloomy underground prison ruled over by Hades. Brother to Zeus, this ruler of the underworld named Hades. The strong belief was, once Hades got his hands on you, he never let you go. The dead do not rise again. Hades, this Greek god, saw to that. This is the pagan view. This view of the hopelessness of death, then, was directly contradicted by the gospel. We forget that the circumstances of today are different. 2,000 years of gospel preaching has left almost everyone, most of them having a false view, but some kind of hope of eternal life seems to be in almost everybody's mind. And we'll go to that better place where it's all golf courses and beaches and all of that kind of thing forever and ever. That's the view of the world of today. 
But in the view of Jesus' day, in the worldview of his day, there was no resurrection. So think about this. Here's Paul preaching to the philosophers on, Mount, on, uh, on Mars Hill there in Athens. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Paul says, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. Of course, we're talking about Jesus. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Notice the response. When they heard about resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. The philosophers simply didn't think resurrection was possible. And at that point in time, no argument, no amount of eyewitnesses cited would change their minds or their hearts. Some believed, but most did not. Or what about Paul preaching to King Agrippa in his court? And in Acts 26, 8, Paul says, Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Remember, he has, he has been lifting their minds beyond the gods of Greece and Rome. He's talking about the creator God. Why would it be considered incredible or unbelievable that the God who created life in the first place could also raise the dead? Now, I want to move on to the last point of this message, but before I do, I have to say this. If you are a Christian, don't fall into the trap of thinking like the believers around you. I started to go into a long disquisition in my initial preparation for this message, and I decided we don't have time for that today. You know what I'm talking about. Don't fall into the trap of thinking like the unbelievers around you. Don't doubt what they doubt. Don't believe what they believe. If they had it right, they would be Christians. The resurrection of Christ is the greatest attested fact in all of history. To deny it is to deny reality. And so we cannot afford to think like the people of the world. We cannot afford to believe as they believe. So one of the reasons then Paul was reinforcing the resurrection was to get their minds away from worldly thinking, the Corinthian people's minds away from worldly thinking. But there's another reason why he reinforced the resurrection. He was concerned that the Corinthians' focus on living for the resurrection was slip-sliding away. Even as they remained religious, they were turning their eyes from the things of heaven to the things of earth. Every chapter, you read, reread 1 Corinthians, every chapter in this epistle exposes the lack of a genuine love for God amongst the Corinthian Christians. Like the Pharisees, they did religious things in order to be seen by men. We're going to have the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, but if you go back and read chapter 11, you'll discover that Paul was really upset with these people. The rich people would bring a big feast, and they would flaunt their their food as they stuffed themselves and actually got rip-roaring drunk in preparation for the Lord's Supper, while the poor people who were there as well had nothing to eat. And so they, they did religious things in order to be seen of men. The person who lives in the light of the resurrection knows that he will give, she will give an account to God. So we don't live in light of being seen by men We live in light of the fact that how we live and what we do will someday be discussed with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Corinthians may have given lip service to the idea of the body of Christ, 
But they never hesitated to create divisions within the body if it meant their own advancement. They loved divisions as long as they could be in charge of one of the divisions. And they they did not pursue holiness. Read chapter 6. They were in no way interested in pursuing holiness, even though God plainly says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Those who are interested in seeing the Lord will seek to live holy lives. They just will. They knew little, these Corinthians, about true sacrificial Christian love. They were, in short, determined to enjoy this life as much as possible. And they saw religion as just one more way to enhance their earthly existence. Does this sound like traps that modern Christians might fall into? The idea of using religion to enhance our earthly existence. They had no interest in self-sacrifice, and they certainly weren't concerned about laying up treasures in heaven. They wanted the heavenly treasures to enhance how they looked and how they appeared to other people in this life. They were not looking the other direction. So look again at verse 19, the last verse in today's text. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. I want you to keep that in mind as I close with this. First of all, living for Jesus won't help you much in this life. Let's be clear about that. Living for Jesus won't help you much in this life. If you go around calling yourself a Christian, merely mentioning his name is going to cause you to lose some friends. And if you show any interest in Christian holiness, you'll be called a a hater by those who desire to live in perversity. Even if you're a genius in the sciences, if you keep talking about your faith, you will almost certainly find a lot of doors are closed to you. Christian businessmen get shut out of lucrative opportunities because they won't look the other way while things are done under the table. Christian professors in universities are often denied tenure simply because they're a Christian. Living for Jesus will shrink the field of marriage prospects. If you're a young person, you want to marry a Christian, I mean a real, out-and-out, sold-out-for-Jesus Christian, you're not going to have as many choices as you might. And if you get rich... Let's say you're a Christian and you go ahead and get rich. Jesus will come along and ask you to give away a lot of it. In fact, I'm going to say, based on the truth of God's word, Jesus is going to come along and ask you to give a sacrificial amount. Let me even go one step farther. Even if you're poor or you consider yourself one of the poor of this world, Jesus is still going to ask you to give away a sacrificial amount of what you have and who you are for his kingdom. And if you live in China, India, Egypt, Iran, host of other countries, to call yourself a Christian, you may very well lose your life. You hear what I'm saying? Jesus, you know, following Jesus won't help you much in this life. Is that making sense to you? Following Jesus is not a way to get ahead in this life. And all the while that all these other things that I've mentioned are going on, there will be times when your own flesh will constantly make demands of you that you dare not satisfy. For Jesus' sake, you dare not satisfy the desires of the flesh. And so I say, I say again, if you are focused on this life, Christ isn't going to help you very much. On the other hand, this world, is the only place where you can truly show your love for Jesus. Well, I'm going to love Jesus when I get to heaven. Yeah, and so is everybody else. You want to show your love for Jesus, now's the time to step up and step forward. Only here is putting the gospel first, a sacrifice worthy of reward. 
Only here is it worthy of an eternal heavenly commendation to live sacrificially. Only here can you take up a cross to follow Jesus. Only here can you demonstrate that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ more than your flesh and blood relatives. Only here can you demonstrate the fruitfulness and the liveliness of the inner being even as the flesh is being ravaged by age. You know what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Though the outward man perishes, the inward man is renewed day by day. So only here on, on, on earth and in this life can you demonstrate that heaven matters more to you than life itself. And isn't that our call? To demonstrate in this life that heaven matters more to us than life itself. Would you bow your heads, please? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just want to leave this challenge before you, before we move to the Lord's Supper. Does heaven matter more to you than earth? I mean, being with Jesus, seeing Jesus, hearing Jesus say, as he rewards you, not in some fanciful, uh, modern education sort of way, but as he truly rewards you for work actually done, well done, good and faithful servant. Does that matter more than anything you might receive in this life? When was the last time you told someone about Jesus? And when was the last time you chose to take money that was originally budgeted for the pleasures of this life and decided, no, the Lord wants me to spend this for the kingdom's sake? When was the last time you had a choice between surrendering your life to the service of Christ in the body of Christ, through the body of Christ, or choosing to reserve your time and your energy for yourself? When was the last time you had that choice and chose to follow Jesus, chose to count your life not worthy for the kingdom, but you're going to pour it out in his service anyway through surrendering to the call of the Lord to take responsibility for something within church life or whatever it may be. If someone asks you to demonstrate that you are willing to sacrifice your life now for future rewards in heaven, what would you point to? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, help us to see then that as Christians, this is a miserable place to be. And if all we focus on is this life and not the life to come, we're wasting our time. We truly are to be pitied. If this, is all, all the, if this world is all that matters to us, even as Christians. Help us, Lord, to be able to see through the veil with eyes of faith that glorious reward of seeing Jesus face to face someday, of being welcomed into his presence, of being included amongst those who surround the throne and praise him forever and ever. Help us to live for Jesus now and to live for the resurrection now and to to prove that we believe in the resurrection by living with our eyes focused on the life to come. In Jesus' name, amen.